We're in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. When I went to uh, Romania three years ago, I went with a group and we were doing medical missions. And so uh, there was a group who, uh, there was a doctor, there were nurses who would provide certain medicines or consultation with the people who came. And then I was a part of what we called the evangelism team. And so I'd be seeking to engage people in conversations about religion and spirituality and the gospel. And one thing that they encouraged us not to do, which I I typically don't do when I'm speaking with people the gospel, is to lead them to repeat a a prayer uh, that they might be saved. And the reason in particular they didn't want us to do this is because they were used, these, the people of Romania, especially those in the churches, were used to repeating a lot of prayers. And they thought they would be saved by simply repeating prayers to God. And so they said, do not do that. And the thing about uh, faith in Romania is that many, many people claim to be Christians. If you go in and speak to someone and ask them, are they a Christian? They'll say yes, by and large. In fact... Uh, a survey showed that 92% of Romanians would say that they are Christians. And yet when you begin to dig a little deeper, as we began to have conversations, we recognized what that meant to them in many cases was they attended church on Easter or for weddings or for uh, baptisms. They do infant baptism. Uh, But it really didn't have much to do with their, their lives in general. Very few people actually gathered for church uh, on a regular basis. I think it was around uh, 40% or fewer of Romanians gathered together regularly with the people of God. They, for many at least, their faith, their claim to faith didn't result in a life of obedience to God. And it didn't, at the very least, result in a commitment to the people of God. But how similar to that is life in America and spirituality in America? Uh, The numbers of a survey I saw showed that some 83% of people claim to be Christians. Do you know what regular church attendance is in America? About 37%. More than half of those who claim to be Christian don't demonstrate a visible commitment to the people of God by gathering together week after week. Not to mention just the moral corruption within our society, right? You would expect that if 87%, of people are believers claim to follow Christ, then by and large we would be attempting to follow Christ. But we don't see that in our society. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with those who claim to be Christians, and yet it doesn't result in a changed life. Those who claim to be followers of Christ, and yet their lives in any visible way don't demonstrate that they do indeed follow Jesus. Well, James would have us use discernment. He would have us to examine those claims based on the evidences of one's life, and he would have us examine our own faith our own claims to faith in light of how we live. So look at our passage, James two fourteen to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith 
but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Sometimes in James, it's difficult to see connections between the different parts of Scripture. Sometimes it seems like he jumps uh, from one topic to another without warning. But I think there's a larger connection here, several larger connections here with this passage. One of which being this larger section in which James is considering true religion. What does true religion look like? And it goes all the way back to chapter 1 around verses 20 through 26. What is true relationship, uh, true religion, especially in relationship with the poor, with the orphan, with the widow? And the context here seems to be that James is dealing with issues of those who claim to have faith. They claim to be religion, religious, but their lives don't match up to their profession of faith. So I think what James is aiming for here and in kind of a larger Uh, section is exposing the pseudo-faith or the false faith of some who are being welcomed into the community of faith. Perhaps what had been going on is that poor, troubled Christians were welcoming in those rich who claimed to have faith and yet it resulted in no demonstration of care for the poor. So we can understand the poor wanting the the rich to be a part of their community. And so they would just accept kind of a verbal profession of faith without seeing any actual deeds lining up with that profession. So our our main theme, I think, in this section, verses 14 to 26, would be this. Faith without works is dead. James wants us to see that faith without works is dead. In other words, if someone's professed faith... So they're professing to have faith in Christ. If this profession doesn't lead to a a life of loving obedience to God and love towards others, then their faith is false. The flip side of that is this. Genuine faith leads to acts of love for God and neighbor. Genuine faith leads to a changed life. So James argues first by example, verses 14 through 17. He gives this example where we can see this in practice. And then he uh, 
reasons logically in verses 18 through 19. He argues this from logical reasoning. And then in verses 20 to 26, he gives a couple of biblical illustrations to prove his point. Uh, So first, notice in verses 14 to 17, he argues by way of example. And is uh, perhaps if we could put a proposition here, a truth here, in verses 14 to 17, it would be this. There's more to faith than claiming to have faith. There is more to faith than simply claiming to have faith. So he starts with two questions. What good is it, brothers? What good is it if a person claims to have faith, but he has no works? And then... A related, a closely related question is, can that sort of faith save him? So what good is it? And, and can that faith save? And the key here to James's argument is this is one who claims to have faith. He didn't say, what good is it if a person has faith and doesn't have works? He says, what, what good is it if a person claims to have faith but doesn't have works? And this faith that he's describing here is not just how people in our society would say you have to have faith. You need to believe. It's not just a, a general hope that things will turn out well or a uh, general hope in the good of humanity. What he's talking about is Christian faith. He's talking about uh, faith in the sense of trusting in Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection from the dead, trusting in Jesus to save me. What good is it if, if a person has claims to have this faith in Christ and yet does not have works? He also, he's talking about a false faith, ultimately. He says, he doesn't say, can faith save them? He says, can this sort of faith? So when James is talking about faith here, he's not talking about genuine faith. He's talking about a false faith, a faith that has proved itself to be empty and useless. So he gives an example. What if poor believers, notice he says a brother or sister in need, what if poor believers come to you with needs? They don't have daily food. They don't have clothes to wear. So the picture here is, uh, in our society, would be uh, someone who is homeless. Someone who's dressed in rags, who is not prepared for the weather so it's freezing cold outside and they just have one layer one thin layer of clothing they don't have socks they have wet shoes what if someone a brother or sister a believer in your community perhaps comes to you in need and yet you say to them go in peace be well fed be warm and well fed i hope things go well with you. You wish them well, but you don't give them what they need. What good is that, James says? The clear answer is no good. It's not any good at all. It's no good for the poor believer, and I think James is even saying it's not good for the one who claims it. This sort of faith will not save a person because it's a false faith. It won't save him. It proves to be a dead faith. There are a couple implications I think we can draw from this, areas of applications. One, I think, is James would have us to have discernment regarding those who claim to have faith. So within the context, perhaps this is uh, James speaking to the poor in the community who are letting the rich slide by because they claim to have faith. And so James, kind of in an indirect way, is telling 
the, his hearers, you ought to have discernment regarding those who claim to have faith. So this really is one of the reasons why we are, are cautious in taking in new members. Uh, because we as a church want to not only hear the profession of faith, that is important. We ought to profess, if we have faith, we ought to profess that we have faith. But we also, I think according to James, ought to see a life which has been changed by the gospel. So it's nothing personal against someone who wants to become a member. It's simply that we believe scripture teaches and James teaches here. We ought to have discernment regarding someone's claim to faith. We want to see. Does the evidence back up the claim? So we ought to have discernment as the people of God regarding claims to faith, but lest we just apply this to other people, I think James would also have us examine our own faith. How does your faith lead you to act differently than if you had no faith at all? Or think about those who know you best, those who have an inside look at your life. So you can, I mean, we can fool people who don't know us well pretty easily. But what about those who have an inside, in-depth look at your life? What would they say about your faith? What would they, what would they say about your claim to faith in relation to the way you actually live? Does it give evidence that you are a true believer in Christ? That you have genuine faith? Or what excuses do you maybe make for your passivity? So maybe even now you're thinking, well, yeah, I claim to have faith. And yeah, they might would say, I'm not very active in in my faith. And then excuses are coming to your mind about why you don't live in a certain way according to what you claim to believe. You don't have enough money to give to those in need. You don't have enough time. You have other things to do. And really, as we examine our faith, this should sting all of us a little bit, right? Because we know we're not as active as we ought to be. We know that our obedience is not as pure as it should be, that we fail in many ways. But James would have us examine our own faith to see, you know, Ask yourself, what is it that I do believe? And why do I believe it? And how does this work itself out in the way that I live? Many, there are many in our country who claim to have this sort of faith. But what good is it? And I think many take it for granted that they that they have faith. So they grew up in church. They were they were in a religious background. So perhaps it's kind of an an inherited faith. Their parents believed and they went to church and they learned the Bible and they knew all all kinds of things about God. They memorized Bible verses. If you ask them questions about their faith, they know the answer. Or maybe they had some sort of emotional experience and they really felt like God did something in their life. They don't quite know how to express it. And so they claim to have faith. But we ought to consider that merely claiming faith won't do anyone any good. It won't do those around you any good, and it won't do you any good. It won't save you. That sort of false faith won't save you. So wouldn't it be better to take the time now and examine your faith? To really reflect upon your faith? 
and find that you have it than to never examine, to go through life and never examine your faith and find out in the end that you never possessed it. Wouldn't that be better? I think James would have us to examine, to reflect upon our faith. Ask those close to you. How do you see my faith working out in my life? And then we as a body ought to be encouraging one another when we do see evidences of grace in one another's life. We ought to be active. We ought to take initiative in encouraging others. Brother, I, I, I just wanted to encourage you because I saw this evidence of grace in your life. I see you growing in this way. Pointing out evidences of genuine faith. So James says there's more to faith than claiming to have faith. In fact, he says, if your faith in Christ isn't accompanied by action, it is dead. It's a dead faith, which means it's not a faith at all. But he continues his argument in verses 18 and 19, this argument that faith without works is dead. He, here he argues that faith and works cannot be separated. In fact, the only way you can see someone's faith is if it is expressed through acts of obedience to God and love to others. So truth number two is faith and works cannot be separated. We see this in verses 18 and 19. Faith and works cannot be separated. So he presents, James presents, he imagines an objection and he says, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, I think what James is going for here is that we, uh, the object. The objection says, we all have different gifts. Some people are gifted in faith. Doesn't Paul say that faith is a gift of the Spirit? Doesn't uh, Paul say works of mercy are a gift of the Spirit? So some people have faith. They're really good at faith, and God's gifted them with this gift of faith. While others have these gifts of works. They are really uh, active in works of mercy. We all have different gifts, the objection goes. And James says, no, this is not the right way to see this. We're not talking about spiritual gifts here. We're talking about genuine faith versus false faith. He says, basically, that good works are an essential part, an inevitable result of genuine faith. Works are a natural expression of faith. And the only way you can see faith is by the fruit it produces. And so we're right in a sense when we say, well, we can't read anyone's heart to see what they really believe. That's true. You can't see someone's heart, but you can see their life. You can see the fruit that flows from their faith. And that's what James is saying. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then he gives an an amazing and shocking example. You believe that there is one God? So that's the the, uh, basic uh, mantra of the Jewish believer, that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You believe this, that God, there is one God, that He is one? Good! You should believe that. But notice this, even the demons believe that. And they shudder. He points to a sort of demon belief to show 
Faith is more than simply an intellectual exercise. Faith is more than knowing a lot of theology. See, we can even see that it's possible to have a fear of God and yet still not have saving faith. Because the demons have a certain fear of God. It says they shudder, they tremble when they think about Him. Even the demons believe that and shudder. But it does not move them to a loving obedience to God. It doesn't lead them to to cling in faith to Christ. There's no uh, visible change in the life of a demon to show that they are trusting in love God as Savior. So it's possible to fear God and yet not have saving faith. It's possible to have an intellectual belief in God without having saving faith. It's possible to know a lot of theology, but not actually know God. And so as people who care about theology, who are thinking a lot about theology, people like pastors who have been to seminary, who know theology, who have read systematic theologies, who have read biblical theologies, who do a lot of religious reading. This is important for us to consider. Someone can have a seminary degree. Someone can read their Bible front to back year after year and have books of the Bible memorized and yet not know God. Think about all that the demons probably believe. Do you think that the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God? They said as much as Jesus was casting them out. What do you have to do with us, Son of God? They knew who He was. They even know that Jesus died on the cross and that He claims to have died for sinners. They know that Jesus rose from the dead. And so knowing all these things, knowing all of this, these theological facts, does not produce in them a changed life leading to obedience to God. So here's what saving faith is. Saving faith is knowing the facts, knowing that, yes, Jesus is God in human flesh, that He lived the perfect life of obedience to God that every other human should have lived. It's knowing the facts that Jesus suffered, as we confess under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died on the cross for sinners, paying the penalty that was due to every one of us for every one of your sins, knowing the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in victory over death and hell, knowing all of those facts and then placing your faith in the person of Christ clinging to Him in faith, in desperation, knowing this is my only hope, this is my only salvation. Knowing the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that calls the need for your salvation. Clinging in faith to Christ, and then what will happen is that will result in a changed life. A life that yearns to obey God that longs to know Him more, that longs to please Him more, that longs to serve Him and to serve His people. 
But just having intellectual belief or knowing a lot of theology won't get you there. One commentator said, It is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. There's another way, though, that we might separate faith and works. And that's what I, how I would use the term compartmentalize. We have a tendency to compartmentalize what we think matters to God and what doesn't we think doesn't matter to God in our lives. So a definition for compartmentalize is to separate into isolated compartments or categories. And for those of you who are sticklers about not including the word in the definition, I looked it up. This is what the definition said. So to compartmentalize, to separate into isolated compartments or categories. So it means we section off parts of our lives that we think, well, this part really matters to God. And so I'm going to give him this part of my life and I'm going to really seek to please him in this part of my life. And then to say in another part of my life, well, this doesn't really matter to God. So I can kind of keep that to myself. I can kind of keep that private. It doesn't really matter to God. And so I can just live the way that I want to in this part of my life. It reminds me of my life in high school where I professed faith in Christ, especially at church on Sundays and Wednesdays. And, you know, all the leaders of the church looked at me as, you know, a good teenager who, uh, you know, I was crazy sometimes, wild and crazy, but I liked to follow the rules. And I knew the Bible verses that we memorized and I knew theology even as a young man. And yet I compartmentalized my life at school. And people knew that, you know, yeah, I went to church, but the way that I lived wasn't really different from those who didn't claim faith at all. You know, the things that I said, the jokes that I made, various other ways where my life matched up with those who claim no faith. What, I, what was I doing? I was compartmentalizing my life. I was saying, well, this part doesn't really matter that much to God, so I can simply live the way that I want to. And in that way, I was separating faith and works, which James says you can't do. One naturally flows from the other. If you have genuine faith, it naturally leads to a life of obedience to God. It produces fruit. And so what, we're, what James is saying here is you, you don't simply, if, if, you know, if you claim to have faith and you don't have works, he's not saying, well, you simply need to add on works to that faith. He's not saying you just tack on some good works. You need to start doing good works to accompany your faith. He's saying, I mean, so... If there's an apple tree that's dead, you don't just add apples to it. You don't just post apples on it to try to make it bear fruit. You need to uproot the tree and plant a real living tree there. What you need is, is life, a living faith, no longer a dead faith. So you don't tack on works to this faith. You need real faith. You need genuine faith. That's what James is saying. So... Why should we break down these compartments in our lives if we find that we have them? If you recognize that in your own life. Well, one reason is simply the commands of God demand it. What is the greatest commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all of your being, with every part of your life. God is demanding that you love Him. It goes right along with one of the questions in the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end or purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is your chief purpose as one who is created in His image to bring Him glory in all that you do. Not in just certain sections of your life, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But also consider that Everything God has commanded us, He has commanded it ultimately for our good. Right? So it's, it's ultimately in our best interest to obey His commands. And so it's actually doing you harm to compartmentalize, to keep certain areas of your lives from God. It's just, I mean, common knowledge, it's not good for us to be two or three or four people in one person, right? To have two faces. And this is a sure sign that we are separating faith from works. It's a misunderstanding of how faith impacts, changes our lives. Faith and works cannot be separated. They're integrally, I'm not going to say it, integrally related to one another. Good works necessarily flow from genuine faith. And so, in case you've misunderstood me at this point, let me put this another way, and this is our final truth. It comes from a quote from Martin Luther. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, yes, but the faith that saves is never alone. And so James gives us two examples from the Old Testament of those who had faith, genuine faith, that led to works of obedience to God. Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of our faith, and Rahab, a prostitute. So you know the story of Abraham. He was called out of a land, it seems like out of nowhere. Come and follow me. Go to this place where I will tell you. And God makes promises over and over again to Abraham. I am going to give you offspring like the stars of the sky, like the grains of sand. I will number your offspring. I will make you into a great nation. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And Abraham, in Abraham, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, God makes this unilateral promise again. And he even goes about it in a, a covenant ceremony. But he says to Abraham, I will give you offspring like the stars of the sky. And, and it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, Abraham continued on, and then sometime later we read in Genesis chapter 22 that God makes this shocking command to Abraham, Go, offer your son Isaac, the one, the one who has been promised to you. Offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham goes through with it. He just gets up early in the morning and takes his son with him to the mountain God would show him. And he 
does everything that's needed for the sacrifice, lays Isaac up on the altar to be slain, raises the knife above his head and is about to pierce his son when the angel stops him and says, now I know that you fear God. And what's happening there is Abraham has already had faith. God has already proclaimed, yes, I see your faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is how his faith is playing out. By obeying God. No matter how shocking the command, Abraham obeys God and it expresses itself. It comes to full expression in this willingness to sacrifice his own son in obedience to God. There are five statements that James makes about Abraham and his faith. He was considered righteous for what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar. His faith and actions were working together, so they're not uh, separate from one another. They're not opposed to one another. They're cooperative. His faith was made complete by what he did, so it came to full expression in this act of obedience to God. He believed God and it was credited to to him as righteousness he was called God's friend and then James makes this statement that might confuse us because we're all used to knowing what Paul says when he says we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law and James says you see that a person is considered righteous or justified by what they do and not by faith alone how do we reconcile those two things They seem to contradict one another. Paul says we are saved by faith and not by works of the law. And James says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, I think the right way to see that is that that they are addressing different situations and different problems in their respective churches. Paul is, in his works, he's addressing those who say, uh, yeah, faith is good, but really what you have to do are these works of the law. And specifically, uh, these Jewish works of the law. If you really want to please Jesus, if you really want to be saved, you must do these things. Whereas James is facing those who claim to have faith. Simply claim to have faith, but it doesn't work out in their lives. So for Paul, when Paul uses the term faith, he's referring to a genuine faith in Christ. And when James refers to faith, he is speaking of a false faith. Those who simply claim to have faith, but there's nothing genuine about it. When Paul says, uses the word justified, he's speaking about how a person is declared righteous before God. So in justification... A person trusts in the person and work of Christ and God looks down upon him and says, you are now righteous in my sight. And when James uses the term justification, he's using it as vindication. That a person's faith is vindicated by their works. Their works are giving evidence of their faith. And so we shouldn't see these as... uh, contrasted at all they are complementary they are these views of James and Paul they would affirm one another eventually at at the council in Acts chapter 15 they would affirm yes uh, I see Paul's gospel and it is absolutely true I think that the larger point James wants us to get from Abraham though is this his faith was genuine and it resulted in acts of obedience to God it was real 
And that's the same uh, lesson he wants us to learn from Rahab. So Rahab, you know, was a member of the community at Jericho. And God's people and Joshua sent spies to this city to find out who was there, how they might destroy it. They came to Rahab's place and she housed them. She hid them and sent them on their way to safety. Why? Because she had heard of the amazing works of God. She knew who he was just from stories she had heard. This is the great and powerful God. And my heart melted when I heard that they were going to destroy us. And she trusted in him. Her faith in the one true God led her to actions of love for God's people. And she and her family were saved. So James shows his point in the positive sense here. These are examples of faith working through love, examples of genuine faith producing fruit of obedience to God and love for God's people. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. Notice how he gives, though, those two very different examples of Abraham, the father of the faith, and Rahab, a prostitute. Why does he do that? I think it's to show variety. I think it's to show God has always done it this way. That this is how God works. Regardless of a person's background or status, God works by giving people faith and then that leads to acts of obedience. So I'm reminded of some of the same people we spoke to in Romania who are called the Roma people or who are called gypsies uh, across Europe. Um, and they are known for being basically thieves, con artists. They will weasel you out of your money. They will steal your things. And we got the opportunity to share the gospel with gypsies the Roma people, while we were there, they, many of them wear brightly colored clothes and flowers in their hair. Um, I remember speaking to a woman named Viorica. I remember it because Viorica uh, is a translation for the flower, the bluebell. And I spoke to her about the gospel. I shared with her the story of the, um, the Pharisee and the tax collector praying before God. You know the story. So... The, the, pre, the Pharisee comes to prayer in God and says, God, thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. I do this and I do that. And I thank you that I'm not like that. I give my money to the poor. I pray regularly. I fast regularly. And then I told her about the tax collector who I, I just called a sinner. And then there was a sinner who came to God and wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and cried out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And at that point, I stopped with Viorca and I said, now, who do you think went home right with God? Who do you think went home and God was happy with them? And she said, without hesitation, it was the religious man, right? It was the Pharisee. And from that moment, I got to share with her, no, actually, it was the sinner, You see, she had always placed herself in the sinner category who was not right with God. And she didn't recognize that grace was available to any and to all who will call out to God for mercy through Jesus Christ. And what James is doing here is showing us it's not just the one who seems upright and religious 
who can have favor with God. It is anyone and everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord for grace, for mercy, and cling to him in faith. The prostitute Rahab, clinging to faith in Christ who is yet to come for her salvation. And the same is true for you today. You're saved by faith alone if you will come to him humbly, crying out for mercy, clinging to Jesus Christ in faith, whether you are rich or poor, whether you have a moral background, an immoral background, no matter the baggage you have, trust in Christ to save you and he will give you mercy. You are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. But then once you come to Him in faith, it will result in a changed life for His glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, each one of us, no doubt, has a tendency to consider certain areas of our lives as off-limits and not really important to you. We have a tendency to separate faith and works. We have a tendency to... Be slow to connect our faith with how we live. But we pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, convict us of sin and lead us to repentance. What you're calling us to as we examine our faith is repentance for areas where we are being hypocritical. So lead us to repentance, Father. I pray that as you cause us to examine our faith, if there's one who has examined it and found that it is useless and dead, that you would draw him or her back to yourself. That you would cause them not to simply try to add good works onto the dead tree. That you would cause them to want to uproot the tree and have genuine faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.